Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. This is a theatrical mockery, man. Okay. <laughs> that was... Uh, I don't know quite how that was playing out, but all right, I'll Wait, take it. I, oh, yeah, it might not be the best impression. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a tough one. The, the, I, there's not really a market for the Mark Borchardt impression, Josh. And, like, but yet there should be. Picture this man. Can, there yeah. you go. That was a little better. That was a little stronger. <laughs> so in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1999. And this episode is our Sundance Film Festival prize winner episode and uh in past seasons we've we focused on the grand jury prize dramatic winner but at 1999's sundance the film that won both the grand jury prize and the audience award for drama was a film called three seasons that was uh not really accessible so we couldn't find it anywhere really no no we really couldn't so uh instead we are talking about the grand jury prize winner for documentary at 1999's sundance which is american movie featuring mark borchart and i think probably a more interesting and certainly more well-known choice than that other one so hopefully uh it'll be a fun one to talk about uh, it's so much fun to watch. I can't see us not having fun talking about it. <laughs> it is fun to watch. Uh, I mean, we've talked about some serious, heavy documentaries, but this one is just is just it's almost like a comedy. And it's nice that we're getting a second documentary in this season uh, because uh, the form is has exploded with streaming platforms. And I think it's great to cover more than one documentary per season. I agree. And this is very different from the film that we covered in our documentary episode, the uh, Vim Vendors film, Buena Vista Social Club. Right. So this film was uh, popular. I, I think, you know, I mean, as far as documentaries go, it grossed $1.2 million at the box office. I mean, I think that is is pretty successful for a documentary and certainly has become this this beloved cult film over time. Right. And uh, Mark and Mike Shank, his uh, his cohort there became like kind of like these fun pop cultural figures like uh, Tommy Wiseau has. Right. You know, yes. he just they pop up in things and. So I think like the success of the movie is there, but the ongoing success of these guys is uh, is just great. Yeah, I mean, they certainly became these these characters after this film uh, was a sensation at Sundance and got all these great reviews and uh, made money at the box office. So uh, Chris Smith is the director here, and he was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, getting his degree in film, and that was where he met. Mark Borchardt, who, as we see in this film, uh, spends a lot of time in the editing suites there at uh, the University of Wisconsin working on his own movie. You know, I, in a way, I give Mark Borchardt credit because he's got priorities. They're simple. Drinking, movies, taking care of the kids. <laughs> yeah. I mean, would you put drinking ahead of making movies in his priorities? I think though, I don't know if he could do one without the other, although he seems to try to sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think making movies is really the only reason that Mark Borchardt is like alive, you know, is, is, is the, well, the no, he meaning didn't, to he, his life. He didn't seem like a bad dad. You got to say that. No, yeah. no, no. I'm just saying that like making movies is clearly 
the number one thing that keeps him going and kind of gets him up in the morning. And, and that could be because it takes him 15 years to complete each movie. It each does. And he that. always has that. And one thing maybe we'll get into later that he talks about is the idea that like, if he finishes something, then it's no longer there. You know, is that he doesn't have the motivation to finish it because it's finished. And so he clearly has a sort of, sort of complex about, not wanting to be done because then he won't be working on the movie anymore. Right. I mean, uh, right away, um, you know, people say don't make movies about movies, which is nonsense. People say, you know, when I was like in, uh, when I had my hot minute in Hollywood there, Josh, said, oh, don't write a Christmas movie. Don't do this. Don't write a movie about movies. It's like, it's all so dumb, right? When you have characters that are this enthralling and like the joy they have and the passion they have for making movies, I can't see how you couldn't like, root for them or relate to them wh whether you want to make movies or not right it's just so much fun like he says you know i'm gonna make the great american movie man or something along those lines like uh, they're just fun 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 guys here yeah they are and i think i mean that perspective maybe is the idea of well don't make a movie about hollywood i think that can get really tiresome movies that are about show business but this is not a movie about hollywood this isn't a movie about showbiz this is a movie about these small town working class guys and their dreams right in general yes you're right that is the bigger theme but we like documentaries about uh uh all the things go that go wrong in making films i think we could just both rack off a bunch of them if we were asked yeah to. i mean i'm thinking of i mean if you were in those meetings you were talking about scripted fiction films and i think that can be a tired sort of cliche a movie about about making a movie or a movie about a filmmaker or an actor as a scripted film can be a little tiresome, but it can be great too. Yeah. All right. So that's really not what this is though. This no, I just wanted to say, like, right. You know. No, that's fair. I mean, um, and I think this is a movie that even if you are not a filmmaker or an aspiring that, filmmaker, that was my point. you can yeah. get behind this and root for these characters. And like you said, it's someone chasing their dream and just doing so many things wrong along the way, but continue, but always with the best intentions, it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think anyone who has any kind of larger ambition in their life can relate to something about this. film. Do you have any type of larger ambition? No, in your no, life? I don't. Dave. I've got too many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, if you try, if Mark Borchert was making a podcast, you know, yeah. we could identify with that. Maybe he's got to have one. Does he's he? got a radio show? He's, yeah. yeah, he's yeah. got a radio show, which maybe exists as a podcast. So this movie got great reviews from critics. It got uh, two thumbs up from uh, Roger Ebert and his guest critic Joyce Kulawick at the time, and four stars from Ebert, and four stars. Yeah, Ebert loved it, and I loved watching. So uh, Ebert, of course, saw this film at Sundance, where, according to his review, the crowd at Sundance was so eager to see Mark Borchardt's film that he's making in this movie, Coven, uh, that they just played it afterwards, even though it wasn't scheduled. That's amazing. You know, uh, for the last year or two, you might be aware there's a global pandemic. Mm. Might have heard a thing or two yeah. about it. And we, we uh, often have conversations us three here in this room right now about, you know, the theatrical experience versus watching at home. And I got to say, if you had seen American movie at Sundance at its pr Sundance premiere, that has to be the ideal way to see this movie. What an amazing experience. that would Yeah. Have been. And then to be able to watch Coven on the big screen with Mark Borchardt there. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about the room a lot and Dave's experiencing that in sort of a pure form, but especially the people who saw it, in the earliest premieres with Tommy Wiseau, like that's got to be kind of what that experience was like. And I didn't know they played Coven. 
mispronounced, uh, obviously, uh, by, because Borg well, no, you're pronouncing it, it correctly because that's the way it's supposed to be pronounced in the movie. Oh, right, sure. But I didn't know it played afterwards, but that makes me happy for Mark Borchard, which I I want to be happy for him. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Ebert, the way he describes it, Ebert, it was like, wasn't supposed to, but everyone in the crowd was like, we want to see it. So my point, though, is that so he's seen both American movie and Coven and Joyce Klawick, who is his guest uh, co-host at the time. She has only seen American movie and they're both gushing about how great it is. And uh, at the end of her review, she says, I can't wait to see Coven. And Ebert says, I've seen it you can wait. <laughs> and it was just this great deadpan that he gives her at the end of their review. Um, well, I was, uh, that's hilarious. But the shots they showed of, I'm not, I don't know the story, like how it played out in the acting. I think they were probably a little over the top. The shot, the shot design was good. And, you know, from what we saw, it there. was. And that's something that they mentioned too, that, um, and that I noticed here as well, is that even just in the brief glimpses that we get of Coven in American movie, it's like, wait, maybe he kind of knows what he's doing in some fashion. Like, this looks cool. I don't think he, I don't think the issue is that he didn't know what he was doing as a filmmaker because he clearly has a depth of film knowledge and a breadth of film knowledge yes. as well. But I think it was just like relying on just his buddies and that they could just all do what he saw in his head. Maybe he didn't communicate well or delegate well or just like put people in positions uh, that they were not qualified for. Yeah, that's certainly the case. So Ebert in his four-star review said, if you've ever wanted to make a movie, see American Movie, a documentary about someone who wants to make a movie more than you do. Mark Borchert may want to make a movie more than anyone else in the world. American Movie is a very funny, sometimes very sad documentary directed by Chris Smith and produced by Sarah Price about Mark's life, his friends, his family, his films, and his dreams. From one point of view, Mark is a loser, a man who has spent his adult life making unreleased and sometimes unfinished movies with titles such as The More, The Scarier 3. And yet, Mark Borchardt is the embodiment of a lonely, rejected, dedicated artist. No poet in a Paris garret has ever been more determined to succeed. Man, that Ebert. Sometimes he just, he gets you with the language, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, two things. The more, the scarier. I love that they've made like six of those, right? <laughs> right. How great is well, that? Well, I think it's at one point, uh, you know, they have the various sequels and you just, it, it, a sort of a subtle thing on screen here is, you know, he, Chris Smith shows a clip and it says the more, the scarier in the year. And then there's the more, the scarier two and three and the years. And then we get to, I think it's four or maybe it's even a later six, one. I think was the last. There you go. And it's yeah. the more, the scarier six. And it just says unfinished. <laughs> and you just, you know exactly what's going on there. Yeah. I mean, you know, when, when we were researching this, we tried to watch COVID and couldn't find it. Like, he should put Coven out with all the more the scariers, right? And like a whole deluxe set. Or yeah, I don't know. Coven is available. You can buy it from Mark Borchardt directly. On VHS. On v well, and I think on DVD too, but also, yes, on VHS. Uh, it is a, like an extra feature on one of the DVD releases of American Movie, but that's not the way that we watched it. So it's out there, but it's not as accessible as it could be. I uh, I don't think that Borchardt is the lonely artist, though, that Ebert makes him out to be. He has such a great support system. Or maybe he has trouble finding financing, but what filmmaker of that independent level doesn't? But he has a whole team who are dedicated to giving him their time and energy to help him achieve his dream. Yeah. Sometimes you wonder like, why are they so dedicated? His friends and his girlfriend and, and yeah, you're right. He doesn't have as much money that he, as he wants, but 
he like his old Uncle Bill does give him the money. I mean, Uncle Bill may spend this entire movie complaining, but he gives Mark the money. Man, I remember the first time I saw that at the end. That choked me up a bit. Yes. Uh, spoiler alert there. Uncle Bill is dead. <laughs> He's been dead for a long <laughs> been time. Been dead for 25 years. Yeah. But he does. I mean, you know, like Uncle Bill is half dead throughout this film, I think. And you know that that's coming. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, especially at the end, he looks worse than at the beginning. But, you know. I'm glad that Uncle Bill got his due in that, you know, his brother, Mark's dad, was like, uh, talked about what a, uh, you know, great, powerful man he was, a scholar. A scholar yeah. yeah. So that was nice. Yeah, yeah. But it is weird that he had all that money and lived in a dilapidated trailer that looked like it hadn't been cleaned. Yeah, well, sometimes that's that's why you have the money, right? Because he just he never spent it on anything. Josh, you said, uh, you said, like, why do they dedicate this... I think it's kind of like that small town America. Like, you know, they talk so much about like, yeah, when we were teenagers, all we would do is drink in the backyard. And it's like, well, now one of their friends is like, oh, I'm going to make a movie. And it's like, well, yeah, we could do that. I don't know what uh, the Packers aren't playing today. What else are we going to (laughs) do? Right. That's true. It's something to do. Uh, So Glenn Lovell in Variety said, in his way, Mark Borchardt is as passionate about hobbling together picks as Orson Welles was. Chief difference. Wells was a genius. Borchert is the local character who thinks he's a genius, dropping references to Bergman, Woody Allen, and the Magic Hour at production meetings. To their credit, Chris Smith and co-producer Sarah Price never imposed themselves on their subject or succumbed to the temptation to jump in and share funds and equipment. Not that the headstrong Borchardt would have, would have accepted, even in his bleakest hours. This guy doesn't know the meaning of the word quit which is why he's emblematic of something fundamental in the American ethos. And I mean, that's if there's a criticism of this film, it's the idea that it's sort of exploitative of Mark Borchardt, which, yeah, I mean, I don't really think so either, but that's the primary criticism here. But I think he gets to something important that even if Chris Smith was like, oh, no, wait, I'm going to help you and I'm going to like take over somehow that Mark doesn't want that. He wants to do it his way right also then it then then you're almost exploiting your own project because you're not moving back and you're uh you can have a subjective point of view but you're changing the outcome of what the what you're filming at that point in time right right and if you want to make a true documentary then you have to sort of step back and this is a common thing i mean i don't know if we've talked about it in you know i think we talked about it a little in like crumb when we talked about that film, not that financially Robert Crumb was struggling, but just the idea of how exploitative potentially could it be of someone who maybe is, is mentally ill or troubled or whatever. Right. With the brothers. Yeah. I mean, and there's clearly maybe not Mark himself, although he's got his problems, but you know, Mike Shank is his buddy with the, Who's, I guess he's in recovery. He's at so least. lovable. He man. is quite lovable. Yeah. Okay. I wanted two things about this. Uh, yeah. Lovell. I wrote down this quote from him. It was a madcap tribute to a beer guzzling Midwestern filmmaker. I kind of like that quote. Yeah. Also, I, the thing that I got from your your kind of uh, piece there on from him was, you know, he thinks he's a genius. I don't know if we ever got that. I think he's very confident and like passionate about his knowledge of film but i don't think he comes off as narcissistic or holier than thou in any way no and i don't know that he thinks he's a genius per se he is confident in his knowledge but i think one of the things that was maybe as surprising to me or that i didn't remember or that i was thinking of him as more of this tommy Wiseau figure is that he is knowledgeable. He's competent yeah yeah he he, when he stuff, talks yeah. about bergman and woody allen in the magic hour 
it's not because he's just dropping things that he heard. Like he knows that stuff. Yeah. I was on a podcast at a film festival this summer called the martini shot. Um, and you know, I think with awesome movie year, especially we've gone over so many movies in these last few years, it just becomes so uh, second nature to us that we kind of talk about it and it might sound arrogant, but it's really just part of our life at this point in time. And this is clearly a person who loves film, who, you know, in in everyday conversation is referencing films that he loves. Right. And I mean, there's that shot of all these film books that he's acquired. And I 100 percent believe he read all those books and absorbed that knowledge. I always uh, am buying film books and um, and that's like one of the first sections I go to in the bookstore. Yeah. So speaking a bit to that potential exploitation element, Lisa Schwartzbaum in Entertainment Weekly said, if Mark Borchert weren't obsessed with filmmaking, he might have become obsessed with computer programming or ice fishing. These pastimes count as passions, but they're not groovy. Being an indie auteur is groovy. And a tacit auteur-to-auteur endorsement of the inalienable right to make movies, regardless of talent or sobriety or adult responsibilities, is what gives American movie its uneasy kick. Chris Smith and his producer-sound recordist Sarah Price will swear that their documentary is warmly admiring of their hero's struggle. And indeed, Borchardt pursues his goals with unironic dignity, most touchingly in his relationship with his uncle, whom he affectionately teases as a vital human being, not just a fragile trailer park geezer to be humored. But the two also document Borchardt's antic lifestyle with a poker-faced dispassion that doesn't protect the guy from himself. So I think what she's saying is not so much that they should have helped him with his movie, but that they should have helped him with his personal problems. That's not the job of a documentarian. That's totally incorrect. And Lisa Schwartzbaum is a well-qualified, you know, critic uh, a, a, and writer, and she should she knows better than that what a documentarian does and what they're not supposed to do. I mean, I agree. I think there is a point, and you know, maybe not in this film, maybe in documentaries that are about more dire situations, right. dangerous situations, where you have to say like. Is someone's life being threatened and do we step in? I agree. There's none of that here. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, look, was it uncomfortable when he's in the editing room and he has his kids like in sleeping bags there? Yeah, that's a little uncomfortable. But the kids you could see like thought it was like a big adventure, you know? Right. I just disagree with this whole thing that that has anything to do with this film at all. Right. And I mean, I think like, yeah, maybe he drinks too much and maybe he's not a perfect father or whatever, but as we've seen going forward and as she wouldn't have known in the, at the moment, like he's, he's all right. He's done. Okay. You know, I think if, if two years after this, Mark Borchard had died by suicide or something, we would be looking at this movie a lot differently. Right. And again, you know, when, when there's a conversation about his um, ex taking away the children, he doesn't just say, Oh, Oh, that's too bad. But now I'll have more time to focus on my movies. He says he loves his kids and wants his kids, right? Right, so like, sure. You know, it's just, um, and he includes them in his filmmaking process, you know? Yeah, so, questionably, but yeah. Not really questionably. It's like one kid holds a camera, right? right? You well, know, no, like, I mean, yeah, not that it's irresponsible, but just I don't know. It's unclear how much they really want to be involved. In sure, that. but I mean, but I, but I, you know, as the only one in the room who has a child, like my daughter loves it when I bring her on, like, set or include her in a filmmaking thing. Sure. So maybe I'm looking at it from a different point of view, but I just don't understand this criticism of like, well, yeah, everyone loves this movie, but did they, 
but did they exploit their subject? Like their job is to film their subject, right? Not mm-hmm. interfere with them. And like you said, there was nothing here where it was crossing over to the red line. Right, right. I mean, I think that's a general documentary ethics thing that comes up. And, and like I said, we talked about in, in relation to Crumb a little bit. And I think a lot of it also, again, is, is dependent on what happened later, that we can talk about it now from the perspective of, hey, Mark Borchert became this kind of cool pop culture figure, and he obviously appreciated everything about what was done with this film, and it worked out well for him. But they didn't know at this time how that was going to play out. Yeah, but I mean, you know, as you as you do, Josh, yes. you're going to ask us the first time we saw this film. Right. And I saw this film, you know, again, this was like one of those, you got to see this when it comes out. Right. And I'm sure I saw it very early in the, when it, when it was released on home video. And I never thought like, oh, they're exploiting this guy. I was like, what a joy to watch. And, you know, he's silly and wacky, but uh, I love his passion for movies. Right. And I think that's what most people what their perspective was. And, and to that point also, I don't remember where it was, but I read another comment saying that it's not like Chris Smith was some Hollywood elite coming in. You know, he's not, uh, he's a grad student, right? Exactly. He also was working with limited resources to make his scrappy little documentary and, you know, struggling as much as Mark Borchardt was struggling. You know, also, it's a bit arrogant to say like that they should have come in. Like they're not qualified professionals to, deal with alcoholism or whatever mental health issues. Sure. They might've had a conversation like, how do you feel? Are you good? But like, it's not their responsibility to do that. And we've seen other documentaries where it's like, you know, the documentarian will turn the camera on himself. I don't know if I should go on. Am I endangering him? They make the story about themselves. Like this story is all about Mark. Right. That's true. And, and I don't know that we, whether or not, Chris Smith and Sarah Price had those conversations amongst themselves. I don't know that we would have wanted to see that in this film. I would, I would have taken us out of the story. Yeah, no, 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 I, I agree. But I just, I feel like this is a, you know, the one common criticism here. So I wanted to kind of bring it up. It's, it feels like someone's overstepping their, like, you know, it's like telling someone else how to parent or something. Right. No, that, yeah, it is, it is kind of like that. Um, But Josh, so that's when I first saw it. When did you first see this? Well, I did not see it at the time it came out. Uh, I did not see it until many, many years later. Uh, I don't recall if I heard about it. I'm sure I heard about it in some capacity, but it wasn't something that was a must see among people that I knew maybe. Um, I remember uh, when I worked on staff though at Las Vegas Weekly, uh, so this would have been starting around 2002. So only a few years later, the uh, art director there, Benjamin Purvis, was obsessed with this film. It was his favorite film of all time. And just I love that. And so I think I might have seen it eventually, uh, partially on his recommendation. So uh, I liked it at the time. But I think by the time I saw it, Mark Borchert was already sort of this pop culture. Did you, know, did you know that, though? I mean, I think I had a general sense of that. I don't know that I was super familiar with him, but I knew he hadn't like died or whatever. So um, I don't recall thinking anything negative about an exploitation aspect of this film when I saw it and I liked it then and I liked it now. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I saw it early. I don't think I saw it as late as that. But I mean, you, you did say like, Look, we didn't have access to this till maybe 2001 anyway. Right, right when it would have come out on home video. Yeah. Um, and that's probably where it built a, an audience uh, 
to the sort of cult level that it's become now. Yeah. Dave? I had never seen it until now, and I didn't really know much about it either. All so, right. Yeah. Ooh. I and, went in fresh. And you enjoyed it? I loved it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is like made for Dave. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's true. I, I want to make a movie like today, you know? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Once we finish this I'm podcast. Trying. That's yeah. what's so funny. Uh, so any other background on this that you want to bring up here, Jason? Well, so we should say that so Coven, the movie we keep referencing, which was kind of like the beginning piece of this, that was from 1996 through 1997. Then he's trying to make Northwestern, right? Well, yeah, the movie starts with the idea that he's trying to make Northwestern, which is his big personal epic. Uh, right. And he has to go back and finish Coven. Uh, yes. the, the point is, it was filmed from 1995 through 1997 when he was doing both of these things at various right. points. Right. And he finishes Coven with the idea that he's going to make some money on selling the VHS copies of Coven uh, and use that to finance Northwestern. Yeah. And of course, as we talked about his penchant for unfinished projects, Northwestern still in progress. <laughs> right. Well, uh, the International Documentary Association ranked this as a top 20 documentary of all time. And New York Times uh, had it in the thousand greatest movies ever made. Coven and was Coven on the list of the thousand greatest <laughs> movies ever made. We'll have to seance with Ebert and yeah. find out. But uh, yeah, that that's kind of the, the background. I just wanted to give us like an overall uh, just so we know where we're going with this thing. Yes. But I love the idea that he thought he and it sounds so crazy now, but like, was it that crazy that you could have sold 3000 units of a of a. It's almost like a TV pilot, a short film, a narrative, whatever it is. Right. I mean, I think if it had been a feature film, like were there independent horror filmmakers making straight to VHS movies yeah. at that time that could have sold 3000 units? Maybe so. Was like a trauma movie or something like that selling that many? I think possibly. But yeah, a 40 minute short from Mark Borchert in Wisconsin. Right. I think that was I'm sure he did because of the success of I American so, movie. Yeah. But without American movie, I, I right, I, yeah. What's the path? Is it like you go to conventions, film markets, and yeah, you, know, you it would have taken a really long. You time. put your ads in Fangoria and that kind of stuff, yeah. or maybe you try to sell to independent video stores. And you did have the beginning of the uh, internet at that point in time, so maybe he could have done some stuff. Right, online. right. But I, I don't know that he would have achieved his goal were it not for American movie. Yeah. So uh, we'll come back then in a moment and get more of our general thoughts on American movie. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1999, we're talking about the Sundance-winning documentary, American Movie. We've gotten into a lot of uh, our thoughts already on this, but I think we can say generally we both enjoyed this film. I love it. Yeah. I'm with Dave. I loved it the first time. I love it now. You know what I love so much about it? There are movies that I feel like I could go back and watch over and over again. And maybe not every day, but like I've talked to you guys about them. Super Troopers, Slap Shots, Slap Shots, Slap Shot. That, that, that includes the Slap Shot sequels, of course. <laughs> yeah, all yeah. three Slap Shots. Yeah. Just stuff like that, Wet Hot American Summer. And it's like, it'll just cheer you up and make you feel good and enjoy it. And I love those movies. And it's interesting because I'm literally trying to finance a movie that I think fits that model at this moment. Coven 2. <laughs> Northwestern too. Right. It's gonna come out before Northwestern. Finally, right? <laughs> nice. But um, yeah, I love it. It's just uh, it, you know, it's uh, I don't know how you can't be enthusiastic 
for these guys and for filmmaking if you watch this. Yeah, I mean, and I think documentaries are rarely brought up as those kinds of comfort movies, but this is something like that because it's structured and, and something that I saw uh, on Letterboxd, even from people who see it like recently within the last few years, uh, they say like, I didn't realize that this was real. I thought it was fake, you know, because it's almost like a, a Christopher Guest movie or something like that. It is so much like a Waiting for Guffman. And uh, that's one of the movies that I really thought of when I was watching this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this like, hey, kids, let's put on a show at all costs. And like we had said before the break, right? When we start, he's going to make Northwestern, right? But he can't get any financing together. So he's like, well, the only way I'm going to get financing, he's got like all the numbers worked out on a dry erase board. Yeah. And you look at the numbers and you're like, does he have any of these numbers worked out? And he's like, I got to finish COVID. And then with that, I can go and make Northwestern because I'll sell these units. And so he gets Uncle Bill to give him 3000 bucks to go it, And then he goes for it, like all in, man. Right. No, he is all in. I mean, we see, I guess he has sort of odd jobs. Yeah, you know? he works at a cemetery and he talks, uh, you know, there's so many quotable moments in this. And he's like, you know, he's like, you know, so I go into the bathroom, man, and someone had shit all over the place, and shit on the toilet and the floor. And uh, that was a real insightful moment for me because I, I knew in like 10 seconds I was going to have to clean up all this shit. <laughs> but it's like, is that what life is? What is life? You know, what are the, you know, and he's always striving for something greater and like, it, for him to put an incredibly depressing situation like that into a positive spin, I thought was uh, just uh, lovely of this gentleman. Yeah, and the thing about him is that we can sort of look at him as as inept in some ways, but he's he's far more self-aware than, say, Tommy Wiseau, you know, who we keep bringing up related to this, or other notorious, like, quote, bad filmmakers. He has, I mean... He's confident in his abilities, but in terms of his life and situation. competent in his abilities. Well, right. And that too, as we've said, that he's actually, uh, you know, maybe more talented or, you know, technically proficient than you would guess. But, you know, he's aware of his own like personal situation and the challenges that are ahead of him and, you know, what people might think looking at him from an outside perspective. Yeah, I think so. And it's it's strange to me. A lot of these guys seem to still live with their parents, right? You know? Yeah, well, he he definitely lives with his mom. And it's unclear whether his dad and his mom live together. They seem to live separately, but get along better. That's right. what, uh, you know. Because of living separately, right. perhaps. And, and having uh, and parallels in my life like that. <laughs> and I lived with my dad for a long time after I had graduated college because it afforded me the opportunity to you know, pursue my art. Also, like, I just love my dad and we got along as roommates, you know, so, but I definitely think like that afforded me more opportunities than if I had to, you know, just get a full-time job right away. Right. Although on the other hand, Mark clearly is paying for a lot of the bills where he lives. I mean, one of the sort of running storylines of this film is how much money he owes for various bills that have gone unpaid. Yeah, that's so funny when he talks about how horrible things are and then like literally the next piece of mail he opens, he gets like a MasterCard and it's such a great moment for him. Yes, so. And, again, I, and again, I want to say like, um, it doesn't seem like he's a deadbeat dad at all. Like he, he loves his kids, he takes care of them. Doesn't seem like he's not paying for any Well, of one the of the things he owes money on is child support. Okay, well then yeah, he should pay for that. Yes, so, yeah. but true, he does... He does care about his kids. He loves his kids. He involves them. Maybe too much. There's a great scene where they're interviewing the kids and uh, Chris Smith asks, uh, what yeah. was the last movie that your dad took you to see? And the kid's like, Apocalypse. 
lives now. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I always talk to uh, her name, Stephanie. That's my daughter's mom. And I was like on, on Scarlett's second birthday, I want to show her the Godfather because I want her to be engulfed in this culture. But you know, Hey man, I, I, I have not shown her apocalypse now. Did but you she, show her the Godfather? No, but she's seen some Chaplin shorts, which right. are more age yeah. appropriate. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. Well, we talk about Dave's parents showing him inappropriate things at a young age. Yeah, sure. worse than Apocalypse Now. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but you're right. He definitely cares about his kids. And I, I would love to know. I mean, we know what Mark Borchardt is up to now, but what, is, what happened to Mark Borchardt's kids? Yes, that would be great. And also, did he and Joan stick it out? Right. The other thing, the other hilarious, I mean, I don't know if hilarious is the right word, but fascinating thing to me is that this dude has two women who are like fighting over him. Uh, small town, Wisconsin, buddy. <laughs> That's all I can think. So. It's kind of amazing. Um, and, you know, we got to talk about Michael Shank, his yes. best friend who's always there, who has definitely been affected by his drug use over the years. Yeah, that's to put it mildly. Um, and one of the funniest scenes is when he tells Mark this story of how he took a bad acid trip and he, you know, because it was laced with like PCP or something. And at the hospital, they thought he was going to die. And he got revived. And the first thing he did was check his pocket so he could take the other three tabs of acid and they were gone. <laughs> But uh, again, he's talented. His music's really good. I love that Metallica cover he does. In yeah, there. yeah. He does a bunch of different covers and he's he's put out some albums. Right. Um, although I would I feel like in the context of this movie, it's entertaining to see him play music. I don't know that I would want to listen to an album of his music. Songs I know, dreams I know, yesternight and classical songs I know. So, you know, he's putting out a classical. What's the Metallica song? He it's does? called Fight Fire with Fire. Yeah, I kind of like it better than the Metallica version. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, well, we talked about, you know, the big deal of Metallica allowing their music to be used in uh, uh, Paradise, Paradise Lost, Lost yeah. you know, and so uh, this was also it's not their recording of it, but they still had to give permission. So they're surrounded by all these characters, the mom who's always like worrying about him and, you know, begrudgingly participates in everything. Uncle Bill, we mentioned their friend Ken, who's always like there, but uh, except when he's in jail for right for reasons that we never. Really I, I really wanted to know that. And then some of the actors like uh, that dude, Robert Richard Jorge, who's like right out of a Christopher Guest movie. You know, yes, and he's like, he's a very quirky St. Clair. Yes, character. you know, it's pronounced Coven, right, Mark? You know, like that type <laughs> of thing. And his he's foppish with his wardrobe. And, yes. You know, you see them putting on these Halloween radio plays and just his screams. He's so dedicated. Like, how can you not like these guys? No, they're all, they're all likable. Everyone that we see, there's no sort of villain character. There's no one who's opposed to Mark who we want to root against yeah. or anything the, like the villain that. Villain is the cost of art. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, and that is always, that's the villain for anything really. Yeah. So yeah. And I mean, I, I did want to say again, you know, one of the things that we see a lot throughout this movie is the sort of ridiculous makeshift way that Mark is setting up a shot, whether it's trying to bash that guy's head into a cupboard that won't come That's apart. That's so crazy. It was at Tom Schimmel's. Yeah. Like, and he just like, you know, they like Ken's like, well, I scored it. So it should be easier. Right. It's totally not. They like hit the dude's. He must <laughs> like, it looks like a concussion. Yeah. And so we see that and we laugh at how ridiculous that is or, the one scene where he's on the floor and he's got his mom working the camera and she doesn't understand how to frame a shot and all this stuff. And we think, oh, God, this guy is just this is disastrous. And then at the end, when we finally get the premiere of Coven, the big theatrical premiere that everyone in this town comes out for, 
Um, and you see those shots in context and have they been edited together. And at least I was like, oh, wow, he knew exactly why the, the, he needed those shots and how they would work together. And it makes total sense. Well, the shot design, like we said, looks good. And um, yeah, it looks professional. So but but I don't know about the story or anything. Right. Like, I'm not saying and that's that another thing is like. We always see him like rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. Yes, we do. And and changing the dialogue. And I'm not saying that Coven is, is a brilliant movie. I mean, obviously Ebert didn't think it was, but just that he does have this kind of visual sense and working yeah, with he these definitely ex does, so. extremely limited resources, he's able to do something. I mean, if he had gone on to greater success, if he had been Kevin Smith, um, again, I think someone on Letterboxd talked about like, I wish I lived in a world where Mark Borchardt achieved the success instead of Kevin Smith. I literally was it whoa talk about an acid flashback <laughs> i had this conversation the other day and i don't think it was with either of you no but i was talking about this movie and i literally said like what's the difference between what mark borcher did and what kevin smith did right right and you know one is that kevin smith finished his movie yes and two is that he has such a knack for dialogue right but there is a lot of filmmakers that um you know and i try to watch as many of these um, low budget indie things as possible because like rah rah right man sure. you know so yeah it's so close you know what separates one from the other it's uh, you know it's a whole roll, run Lola run situation here <laughs> yeah so. well I mean I think that also you know we have that scene that you mentioned where Mark is like in all this debt and then he gets the credit card and is excited and we as viewers are like oh Mark what are you doing but you know Kevin Smith famously financed all of Clerks on credit cards. And if that hadn't worked out, Kevin Smith would have been in exactly the same position as Mark Borchardt, but we celebrate Ed him. Ed Burns is the same thing. Like if you Ed read Burns. his book, I'm serious. Like he's like, Hey, I can make this movie brothers McMullen. And if it doesn't work out, I'll pay it off. And then I'll make get another 25,000 and then I'll make another movie. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Like I, you know, I used to work at Apple. I haven't touched my Apple stock last year. I really considered like, maybe I'll cash it all in and use that to finance a movie. And I was like, wait, I have a kid. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> and like, even when I'm talking to my brother, he's like, yeah, if you were a single guy, I'd say go for it. And I'm like, the, the reason I'm not is because I, you know, want to be a responsible dad. And <laughs> that's a good thing. No, that is good. And yeah. uh, Mark Borchardt would not do that. No, but, like, but I can, I, I can relate to this movie on a lot of levels. I'd say. Right. Right. Yeah. I just want to, I'm trying to also, it's amazing to me because you watch this movie and or at least for me, one of the things I thought is like, how did they even think to make a documentary about this guy? Because the point of this movie at the time that it's being made is that he's a nobody. You know, nobody knows who he is except maybe his friends and family. He's a toiling in obscurity. And, you know, so without knowing the background, I thought, how do you even make a movie about this guy? And then you realize, OK, they met because it was, you know, on this college campus. But I'm just imagining Chris Smith sitting in this editing suite, editing his graduate thesis, and Mark Borchert walks in. Like, what kind of experience was right. this? Right, well, like? he's very charismatic, so you're taking it from that, and like, oh, this would be an interesting guy to cover. And um, yeah, I think that's, and then it just, you know, the comedy of errors that comes along with it. There's a lot of uh, fun things to cover here. Right, I'm just, I'm just saying that, like, the, the experience of encountering Mark Borchert for the that, first that's time what I mean. must be kind of amazing. Right. Yeah. That's, and that's why you do it. So. Right. Right. Um, are you surprised that no one after this movie was like, hey, man, come direct a, like Troma, for instance, was like, we'll give you 200,000 bucks. Go direct a movie for us. Right. I wonder about that because, I mean, I think it in part may be that there's enough in this movie that makes you think that maybe he can't handle it. 
like you say, the the sort of working with collaborators and that kind of stuff that someone like Troma, who is like, sure, here's two hundred thousand dollars, but you need to make this movie in six days or whatever is but his you, concern. But if you're a movie, if you're a film, and I know I want you to get back to your point, yeah. but if you're a film company, you throw out like a a very experienced line producer with them who keeps them on schedule, and you make the movie. Right, and maybe so. The other thing I think is, and it speaks to what was in that review about what would have happened if Chris Smith tried to help him, is the idea that he probably doesn't want, he wants to make Northwestern. He doesn't want to make Toxic Avenger 5, you know? He's going to make his own vision and stick with it. But wouldn't that, I wonder if he, you know, he seems aware enough to know that like, well, if I made this, then that could help me make the next thing. Literally, that's the point of this movie, right? Right, right. So if, if he had had that opportunity, I think that only would have helped him get along. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, well, we can talk about this in the next section, but I mean, he has worked as an actor a lot more than as a director. Yeah. Um, and so maybe that's what he decided. Hey, I'll go hang out on this indie film set for three days and do a part and they'll pay me some money and I can pour that money back into Northwestern. Or I think there's another film that he's been making for the last 15 years or something that he hasn't finished. Um, you know, I, I don't know. But I mean, that certainly is a thing that you wonder about. And I think other filmmakers that are these kind of outsider artist filmmakers that become famous either through documentaries or through uh, cult films like The Room, they do end up in that position where someone offers them some more money and and some of them go on to be legit successes. Right. So I, I don't know. Yeah, The Room, I definitely think the uh, the Shank and a Borchard relationship versus uh, Tommy and Greg Sestero, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, Dave, as a Room super fan, did you see a lot of that in this? A little bit for sure. But, you know, it, actually, one thing that I wanted to bring up that, that kind of plays into that a little bit, you were talking about how, you know, competent he is as a filmmaker and how he probably obviously read those books that he has and stuff like that uh, as the host of piecing it together. I really liked when he was listing off his influences and, yeah, right. and he didn't just list them, but he actually talked about why they were his influences. Yeah. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. And uh, I just thought, you know, that just further goes to show how much he actually cares about movies. Yeah. And that, I think the movie you're talking about is Scare Me, the one that he's been working on for. Okay, ever. yeah, there you go. And supposedly there's a COVID-2 coming out. As well. Yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. What about, um, I want to get back to, to Mike Shank for a second, because yeah. I love, like, you know, when we covered uh, Herzog and, like, his version of America and Strozek, this is what it really should have been right here, right? <laughs> I would imagine. I don't know if Herzog's ever commented, but he must love this movie. I, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. But like, you know, there's the, and I, I think they do a good job of the passage of time with like using holidays, which is always a great way to do it. Yeah. And you, you're interviewing Mike Shank after Halloween and he's telling you what he's thankful for. And it's like, I'm thankful for all this food that I had. And, uh, I had a scratch off lottery ticket and I won $600 and it's like the simple joys of life this man is getting. Well, he's also a gambling addict, so I don't well, know if we're true. supposed to feel happy about his scratch. Well, I'm day. happy he won. Yeah, but, it's better but, but he mentioned that he was just happy to have those or like when they um, what was the I think they were going to get sound or something and like um, or they were going to film that the narration with uncle bill yeah and shank gets in the car and he's like my mom packed us a lunch and right. sandwiches and he's like oh that's so clutch man or whatever like <laughs> just those things are just so joyous to me right and they do take the language is great too you know i love how mark borchert calls his kids man <laughs> like <laughs> he does say man 151 times in this film i believe it yeah, yeah. and i just love that he's talking to his daughter he's like did you swear man <laughs> like, yeah 
That's, you know, and I don't do it like that, but I definitely call my daughter bro or dude sometimes for fun. <laughs> All so. right. So do we want to give this one a, a rating or you have any other uh, thoughts you want to share here? Well, no, just the ending where he does premiere Coven. 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 And, Come on, man. Uh, it's a big joy at what we see anyway is a joyous experience. And you see those kids on the street, like coming up to him, like, what are you going to do next? Like, you know, this was a big deal in this town. It was. And I saw again on Letterboxd, someone mentioning that, you know, to this day, Mark Borchardt is a big celebrity in Milwaukee. In, That's amazing. In this area. I yeah. love that. It is nice. Yeah. Uh, uh, should I rate it, Dave, or did you want to say? No, let's get to the. What rating. are we rating it out of? Four unfinished, five four, unfinished, five unfinished films. Nice. I'm sure he's got that many. Yeah, I got. It has four for me. I love it. I just, it's a great movie, and I will definitely watch it again. I hope sometime. Yeah, I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a, I highly recommend if people haven't seen it. So, Dave, four for me too. All right, good stuff. Well, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of American movie. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1999, we've been talking about Sundance winner American Movie. And we've talked a little bit about the legacy of this movie for Mark Borchardt himself and the way it kind of turned him into this big pop culture figure. He has acted in a lot of small scale indie type films. And I think he's one of these personalities that you know if you're making your low budget horror film or whatever and you can get mark borchardt to make a cameo you know that that the potential audience is gonna be into that yeah and the their friendship i mean you know family guy i think he was on right yeah and, and they've had specials that i could not find mark and mike on zero tv i don't even know what zero tv is i i don't know but uh you know mark himself uh after this was a guest on David Letterman yeah, a bunch of and times. He, and he was his election correspondent for the 2000 election, which is great. Yeah. And I, you know, that made me think of one person to compare him to that we've talked about is like Harvey Picar, you know, another sort of outsider working class guy who made this weird art, of, you know, on his own and became this pop culture figure briefly. Right. I think you're right. I, I think that's right. And, uh, they did host a TV special, the two of them, Night of the Living Dead, live from Wisconsin. So kind of goes back to the influences and everything. Yeah. And I think they do still have, or Mark still has his radio show in Wisconsin. Um, My Dinner with Gabe, Ben Handel. What is that? No, it's, it's, uh, it's called Cinema Fireside. And it's the, uh, the radio show. Yeah. Yeah. Or my dinner with Gabe and whose last name is Van Handel. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and he's someone also who's always at like horror conventions. And yeah. He was made, he's made a living in uh, the field that he loves, even if it's not in the way he expected. Right. I mean, he basically is making a living out of being Mark Borchardt. That's the best way to do it, baby. <laughs> um, you can't make a living being Mark Borcher. <laughs> no, I can't even make a living being Josh Bell. You know, it's really, it's really a struggle. Maybe you should try doing it being Mark Borcher. Yeah, well, he's got that market cornered, I think. Um, and Chris Smith has become a very successful documentary filmmaker. Nothing quite as quirky as this film. Uh, the only one of his movies that I've seen is was his documentary about the Yes Men, which is this weird performance art troupe that does kind of political pranks, and that was it was fine. Jason, I think you saw his Fire Festival movie, right? I did, and I, it was kind of a bummer. Yeah, because I think he's so talented, and this one was not as good as the one that was on uh, Hulu, 
where they had access to was it Billy Smith or whatever? The yeah, guy. yeah, that was kind of controversial because they paid him to be in the movie. It made the movie so much better. I don't care. Um, but Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, which is all about Jim Carrey's performance in uh, Man on the Moon, the Milos Forman documentary about Andy Kaufman and how he stayed in character the whole time. I thought that was a pretty, pretty good piece. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. But, you know, in a weird way, Jim Carrey is a sort of Mark Borchardt-esque figure. Yeah. That. Well, so with Chris Smith, I mean, he's having a big year right now. You know, a hundred foot wave is it's on my to watch list. It's about, you know, surfers who go after the biggest waves in the world. And I couldn't understand why he seemed to have moved into like these limited, you know, six hour miniseries, which of course that's where the money is. Right. right. Now, I think so. that's the reason is that what's, that's what they want. Well, he did well, it. I mean, I couldn't understand why that piece re- needed that, but it seems to be getting a lot of acclaim. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen that. And my general feeling is that those miniseries with few exceptions would be better off as feature films. But you're right that that's kind of where the money is. He didn't. I agree with you. But apparently, you know, the streaming services don't. He did an eight episode Netflix, uh, one of these true crime series that I haven't yeah, seen. Yeah, The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, she was like a three-year-old girl in Britain on a holiday with her family. And it was a huge story. And, you know, her parents were suspects. And I'll probably watch that, too. Obviously, you know, the uh, the biggest hit he has is as a producer of tiger king oh was he a producer on yeah that? one of yeah. the execs i mean uh, the american movie is probably the biggest right right i mean as a director yeah but but i think that is the thing is that this is such a unique film and that it seems like his career subsequent to this has been doing a lot of these more straightforward documentaries i mean i don't know how you always find a character like mark Borchard, but right. i did see he is producing he's not directing another one where it seems like he might have found another character or the filmmaker did called the fight before christmas it's about a man who loves Christmas and goes all out with the decorations documentary and the HOA of the neighborhood he lives <laughs> in hates what he does. So he's fighting with them. And that right. seems like totally up the Christmas yeah, alley. Could be some fun characters in that. Josh, what about uh, The Pool, his narrative film? Uh, I have not seen that. And uh, his first film, the one he was working on when he met Mark Borchardt called American Job, is also a narrative film. And those two, I think, are his least known. So he's definitely more known for documentaries. Yeah, I'd like to see the narratives, but he's, uh, I mean, man, made a career as a documentarian. Absolutely. I, you know, we mentioned a bit the, the idea of these films about outsider artist filmmakers that I feel like have become, love them, you know, more and more popular as we talked about when we talked about The Room, um, you know, people like Tommy Wiseau or uh, the filmmaker behind Birdemic or, you know, these sort of bad movie filmmakers are pop culture uh, personalities far more now than they ever used to be. Uh, I also thought documentary wise of a film called zombie girl, which is about Emily Hagen's. Um, and that film is about her making her uh, independent zombie feature film when she was uh, 12. And it's similar to this in a way that, you know, it's a person who is uh, very confident at a very young age. That sounds great. I want it to see that. It's a fun movie. And the difference about Emily Higgins is she's had a career more like what you mentioned, what would have happened to Mark Borchard. You know, she was in this documentary. It was kind of, it was acclaimed. It played festivals. It got her a lot of attention and she's kind of moved up. She's made movies for Netflix and other independent films and has had a career based on that. So, um, well, uh, there's the one about troll Two. The making of Troll yes, 2. Yes, best worst movie. There's the one about 
the kids who did the shot for shot remake of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is amazing that they were able to do anything like that. Right. right. And those guys are working and uh, or at least one of the guys had a pretty good run now. Um, and then, you know, if you, you know, there are all the other side of that is f- successful filmmakers who have trouble making a movie lost in La Mancha, Terry Gilliam, uh, you know, hearts of darkness, um, which is about the apocalypse now. Apocalypse on, now. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Werner Herzog and the Fitz, uh, burden of dreams, Fitzcarraldo. Right. Um, and, uh, and one that we will be talking about later this season. What? Yeah. Cause we're going to be talking, I guess we'll just say it in our uh, cult classic. We'll be talking, which this could have been also. Oh, this is absolutely. Yeah. A cult classic. We'll, we'll be talking about boondock saints and the documentary that were they just trashed Troy Duffy overnight, which is a interesting film also. And Troy Duffy's come to terms with it, I think. So. Right. Yeah. Those are all, I've seen most of those and they're, they're all entertaining I love films them. to watch. I, I think it's a, great genre to you know a subgenre to look into right and this is a, a great example of it so i wanted to mention a movie that was at this festival cordillera where i was at called small town wisconsin i think it won best comedy up there and um he's he's in this mark, mark portrait is yeah. it how does he do in that film i didn't i didn't get to see oh, it sadly okay. but i've been looking forward to it and uh, mike shank was in storytelling the todd solon's film todd solon's i can see him being really into these people yeah so the only other thing i wanted to mention is like sarah price give her some love produce this thing yes directed the l7 documentary pretend we're dead she's done some episodes of the carrie diaries and yeah, so she's she's doing good stuff. Too. Right, and clearly a very close collaborator with Chris Smith on a, a, a project like this that has a very, very small yes. crew. Um, I don't have any update on Robert Richard Jorge for you. <laughs> oh, we, and we all know what happened to Uncle Bill. Yes. <laughs> oh, hey, the ending, like we said, he leaves him 50,000 bucks to complete Northwestern, which... Um, did he, not he didn't he didn't do someday that. in awesome movie year 2025 or something we'll be able to talk about northwestern all right or I'm scare in. me i'm yeah. in for that me too so that is american movie and that is this episode of awesome movie year check us out on the social media yes please do jason harris comedy slash j harris comedy on facebook Jay harris comedy on twitter jason harris comedy on instagram go for jason.com a website made by Mark Borcher. <laughs> AwesomeMovieYear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I am at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, at JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm also going to do a quick plug for my music website, bydavidrosen.com, where at the time this goes up, I'll have just put out a new album, The Dissection Table, which is a soundtrack to this lost film that I scored, which, speaking of things like American Movie, yeah, fits right in there. It's this movie that just never came out, but I really love the score, and I've finally been given the go-ahead to release it. I would love it if you would get a Michael Shank album and do some covers of Michael (laughs) Shank. Collaboration of some kind? I am down for that. All right. (laughs) So, Jason, what do we have in our next episode? It's our Best Picture winner, Josh, American Beauty. So tune in next time for American Beauty. Yeah, man. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.